you do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space. What up, what up? This is your boy Rob Clark welcoming you to the 22 November Network. Get ready for another exciting edition of the Lone Gunman Podcast featuring me. That's right, your boy Rob Clark coming at you. Stay tuned. Be right there. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show, everybody. This is your boy, Rob Clark, on the Lone Gunman Podcast, episode number 45. Today, I have a special guest named Russ LaChapelle, and we're going to be talking about the medical evidence in the case and uh, a couple theories that he has when it comes to uh, JFK's body and the autopsy. But before we get into that, let me first make an announcement about the Reopen Kennedy Case Australian Conference in 2015. I know it's a long way away, but look, it's in Australia. So make your plans now. If you want to go, um, tickets will be, let me find this here, can be bought at www.reopenkennedycase.org backslash ROKC Symposium dash 2015. And I know that's a big link, so I'm going to link it up on the WordPress site. That's 22november.wordpress.com. 22novembernetwork.wordpress.com Go check it out. They're going to have such speakers as Vince Palomara, Greg Parker, Gail Nix Jackson, Jim DiEugenio, and Sherry Feaster. And more speakers will be confirmed as we get closer to it. They're also going to have some cool paraphernalia uh, for people to actually show up in person. Things like Jack Ruby's jacket, uh, some pieces of the original picket fence. The conference will be held over two days on the 21st and 22nd of November at the Spring Street Mucure Conference Rooms in Melbourne, Australia. Tickets can be bought for one or both days. The theme of the conference is because justice is never too late. Okay, that's going to be the theme. So, like I said, I'm going to link up where you can go get your tickets. Start planning now. The sooner you make your plans, the cheaper it's going to be. So go check that out. And now I'd like to bring on my buddy, Russ LaChapelle. 
Welcome, Russ, to the Loan Gummin Podcast. How you doing, sir? Very good, Rob. How about you? Doing just fine, man. Doing just fine. So before we get into things here and, and your theories on the, some of this medical evidence stuff, um, just let everybody know a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got interested in the case. Well, uh, my basic background comes from when I was a little guy. I was born in 1955, so I've had the pleasure or maybe the misfortune of seeing this whole thing unfold well before Kennedy became president. Uh, I had a grandmother who lived in Butters Bay, Massachusetts, and she, uh, in the 50s, worked at Falmouth Nursing Home, just maybe, uh, as a bird flies, maybe 10, 12 miles from the Kennedy compound. And when she worked there, the three Kennedy boys, Teddy, Bob, and Jack, used to visit the residents there. Oh, wow. And uh, she was the administrator at the head desk, so many times she would be the first to see or interact with them as they came in. And uh, she described their interaction with the residents as something that brought a lot of joy to them and that the, the nursing home became a very jovial spot and uh, the Kennedy boys are very joking fellas. They, they seem to have a what I call a kibitzing nature. And uh, she was quite touched by it and uh, they gave her a couple of mementos, one of which I have a picture that of the three of them is in their you know, fairly young. This is uh, in a time uh, well before Kennedy was uh, was president in the fifties. So uh, she used to, when I was small, and I'm talking four, five, six, seven years old, tell me all these stories about this interaction. And he'd sit there, and usually after dinner, and in her living room, and talk about it. And it became quite a a little thing in my back of my mind because I was formulating nature of the person I was and uh, I found that uh, this really set the course for some of the things that I liked as far as explorers and history and uh, all this mystery that's involved in that and, and entering into history uh, so uh, I used to spend most of my summers there in Cape Cod, my parents would drop my sister and I off there, and we would spend the summer. My parents would have it off the summer off for the, you know, the whole time before we went back to school in September. And uh, being around my grandmother all the time, she would tell me these stories, and it was, it was pretty interesting. So, uh, what happened was that uh, Kennedy Kennedy got shot, and. Uh, really, really set her off because she came to, to love all three Kennedy boys. And for what she had happened, what had happened in that Thomas nursing home during the time she was working there. And uh, we went to her house uh, Thanksgiving after the Warren Commission report had been issued. Now, it's important to understand that the Warren Commission report was issued first Exhibits were were dished out afterwards. Right. So when I got to her place, and Thanksgiving, she had already received the report, and uh, I was uh, eight years old at the time, and I was into reading the Hardy Boys. My sister used to have the Nancy Drew books. I was more attentive to the Nancy Drew books. <laughs> yeah, me too. Why? I think it's a little bit better. Maybe I think you've related to that before, Rob. That you were in. Yep, that's what I grew up reading was the Hardy Boys, man. 
because they, uh, there's, there's a lot of mystery there. You, you learn a lot from life and reading some of that stuff as children. Yeah. And I think that's meant to be. So uh, I started reading this thing. You know, here I am, eight years old, or, or no, I was nine at the time when that happened. And she saw my interest in it, and she said, well, why don't you take this home with you? And she allowed me to take the book home, and then she said, bring it back next summer, and away we go. So I came very entrenched by reading just the report now. And remember, the report had the conclusion, and they saw Oswald as the lone gunman, and he did it, and he was a communist and all this other stuff, and there was no other thing to be said. This was their conclusion. Right. Very, very convincing if, if you don't have the evidence to back it up. Correct. And that's where the exhibits came from. So when I got back to her place in the summer, by that time, the, the exhibits had been issued, and she got those also. So now, here I formulated going into that summer that here it is, Lee Harvey Oswald, guilty as sin. And uh, I started reading exhibits because when I was reading a report, they were mentioning the exhibits, but you had nothing to reference. So now I started reading the exhibits, and by the time... Almost time, maybe August of that year, I had pretty well a formula. I'm looking at the two and comparing. I says, wait a minute, this is something not making sense here. The report says one thing and the exhibits are going another. And I started pointing it out to my grandmother, who was at that time, like, glad that Ruby killed Oswald. He thought that he had done a good thing. Right. You know, and, right. and I had seen with my father uh, on that Sunday morning, he made sure uh, at breakfast he to bring in Lee Harvey Oswald out. I I watched four feet from a 19-inch Philco. Jack Ruby killed Lee, Ar Lee Oswald. My father sitting behind me on the sofa. And I turned around and said, this guy's got nuts. Oh, wow. Watching live on TV, a guy killed somebody. So you actually saw it and live with your own eyes back then? With my own eyes. Wow. At eight years old. And that was like, wow, this guy's crazy. And my father, I turn around to him, and he's glued to the TV, so I turn back, and then we're watching all the scuttlebomb, and it happened. And uh, this really, really, really touched me. This is because by the time I got to my grandmother and all this other stuff, and the, all these things started to come together afterwards. Yeah, well, so, that, that that event, you know, when uh, Jack Ruby shot Oswald, it it sparked a fire in a lot of people thinking that something was something maybe something uh, a little bit more sinister was going on it that maybe was a conspiracy you know what i'm saying oh you know, i'm sure there's people that were much older than me must have been thinking i mean I'm, here i am eight years old i've been watching cartoons and all this stuff you know you see all these crazy things they used to do in laughter but still in all i'm influenced at that age by what is going on here okay so now time's starting pro to progress here. Um, I'm starting to uh, starting to see something a little interesting here, or, or my mind's starting to think in a different way. And uh, of course, Kennedy was replaced by Johnson. And uh, of course, uh, from what we can tell now, uh, Kennedy was trying to get us out of Vietnam. And when Johnson got in there, the war started to really kick in again. And uh, I have a big formulation from a lot of this that because Kennedy got killed in Dallas, this is kind of a Texas thing. 
there's a reason why he was shot in Texas. This is my own personal belief, which I can kind of go on longer than this to present certain things that were happening. We, we know that there were other attempts at, but I think they were kind of warm-ups. They were, hey, let's figure out what we can do. And uh, all the necessary pieces of the pie kind of tend to show us there's a network going on. And if you examine this whole thing enough, you start realizing that everything is done for money in life. Whether it be this, if you want to believe this, happens like this, or anything, our jobs, anything we do in life, it's all about the money. It is. It's all about and the money. how are we going to continue that? Because that's where the power is. So Johnson gets in, and the war goes on, and then uh, Johnson steps out, doesn't he says, I will no longer be your president for another term. And then uh, Nixon, who I think was going to be the boy to be, when he ran against Kennedy and he got defeated, he had already been groomed for that position. He, he was vice president with Eisenhower, and uh, there was, you know, Eisenhower there again was having all kinds of health problems, and Nixon really kind of, as the vice president, was warming things up, which is the formulation for some of the thought behind the video pigs fiasco. And uh, I, I think that people have to really kind of look at that aspect of it because you're now starting to get into the CIA and a lot of conjecture. And all that all goes back to examining long before in history where FDR formulated the OSS. They couldn't create an agency like the CIA at that time because he, by governmental rule, could not do that. So he creates the OSS a service, puts a Canadian in charge, and then the OSS starts in with all some of the members that the CIA became such as Helms, and especially Alan Dulles, and you also have uh, E. Howard Hart and a couple other guys. And uh, these guys are all part of, the, part of what's going on and the starting of what I call compartmentalism. Because the compartmentalism of the whole thing is very important to understand because not everyone has to know everything that's going on. They're all doing their little pieces of the pie, and they're told, hey, this is your job, and you go on, and you do what you do. And because their allegiance allows them to formulate, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I don't question. I just do. You have to start understanding who's at the top, who's in the middle, Who's the little guys that they use to move around? And right. this represents to me something what I call theater. Uh, and you also see this in TV and the media, and that also brings into how the media, when Kennedy got shot, was able to be kind of manipulated into doing this and not, well, don't question that, just do this. And we saw all that going on. And uh, so what I'm kind of getting at is here is that not everybody has to know all that was happening. Right. Like, for example, if the Secret Service had just done what they're supposed to do that day, none of this, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. Something as simple 
is checking these tall buildings, shutting the windows, watching the windows in these buildings. Uh, you know, if if uh, Kellerman had got it off his ass and jumped in the back seat after the first shot, or Greer would have hit the accelerator after the first shot, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. But we are because they didn't do their job and they didn't protect the president. And the question then becomes, why not that day? Why every other day, but not that day? And, you know, you can take that into a million different directions, but it's just part, one small part of a much bigger plan. And like you said, compartmentalized. Exactly, exactly. And now you have to start to get into like, uh, certain people and why this thing down. Why is it happening in Dallas? Well, you have to understand also that after the Bay of Pigs, Kennedy fired uh, Dallas. I didn't really fire Dallas. He kind of smoothed him out of the way. And along with him, a couple of his buddies, Bissell, uh, General Bissell, and uh, Cavill. Now, Charles Cavill is the brother of Errol Cavill, who was at the time the mayor of Dallas and the mayor of Dallas being the overall guy even had his say as to what the police would do right he was definitely uh, there was definitely something up there with the Dallas police that day as well and Jesse Curry and Fritz and and everything that was going on uh, there also Mm. so I mean in my thinking we have a situation where you have this turn which should have never been approved when you're coming off of uh, Main Street to Houston onto Elm. I mean, this is just ridiculous that, that they would, you know, they could have made a plan to just go straight down Main under the underpass and then did their thing to, to get to the Trade Center. Right. And uh, so, why is this happening? And uh, you have to think that Harold Cabell, for some reason, has to be responsible. Although there's a proof that has to go through the Secret Service. So this is where I see the tie-in between the Secret Service and Cabell. So now let's get to the actual, what I call, intersection, which is not an intersection. It's actually Elm Street. And they're turning the corner. And uh, they have a situation here where you're coming down Elm Street. And we have Mr. Zapruder sitting up there on a, on a pedestal with uh, Marion Fitzman standing behind him. And he's filming away. Now, I remember by uh, the the uh, EV reports, they interviewed Zapruder, and he said he kept filming. And what's also very interesting is if you look at Zapruder we know now, you see a section of it that isn't there. So... Did he stop? Did he not stop? I don't know. I think, I think I at the very least he slowed down because the you know there's a lot of witnesses to the seeing the brake lights come on. Oh yeah, well this is this is also very important. But you have Kennedy. The first signs of anything in the film is that he raises his hands. You see him coming up after that sign is in the way. Right. So that's like that's identified as Z two two five, which to me looks like he's getting shot in the throat. Right. And then we move along a little bit, 
and Zapruder keeps on filming. You got a little bit of got a little bit of movement in there, and they've examined that movement. And uh, I kind of I kind of think from what Connolly's saying that he he was adamant that he did not get shot by that first first bullet. Yeah, and the single bullet theory calls for that bullet going into Kennedy, out his neck, making this dramatic turn, hitting Connolly in the back, going through and into his into his wrist and then into his thigh, left up. Right. And it's just absolutely ludicrous if anybody's gonna believe that. It's just it's crazy. I mean Connolly himself is he went to his deathbed saying, No, this wasn't it and his and his wife Nellie was backing up what he said. So I see Connolly hit, getting hit about what we know is the Zapruder film as now, but we've seen it as getting hit about Z290 because you see his body movement in relation to what Chippy said, that he turned to his right, and then as he was turning back to his left, he was hit. So that's at a point before E323 where you see Kenny's head going back and to the left. So here's the identification of what we can see in Zapruder as three shots. Now, according to Sherry Feaster, and her, uh, her forensic examination of this, she's seeing from the blood spatter evidence a triangle forming that shows evidence within an area in the South Knoll location. So, if you take that for what it's worth, that's a continue within itself. I always believed before she came out with this that the Gracie Knoll shot was a three-two-three. I'm not so sure, and maybe there was even another shot, whether it hit or not. David Mannix examined this. He can do his thing. We can't actually prove it at this point. We're getting closer. Yeah, so, anyways, I don't know exactly what to make out of that South Knoll shot because. If 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 one did come from there, you know I I you know I gotta believe something happened on that grassy knoll. You know what I'm saying on the north knoll. Absolutely, you had too many people that saw too many things. Uh, Sam Holland had a, a very graphic uh, diagram that he drew, and the smoke that people had seen. And, and Lee Bowers up on there trying to find out what's going on after the assassination. But uh, going back a little bit here, you have Greer, and you can see from the next film that there's a headlight, uh, a tail light that is on. Exactly. Now, he says he never stopped that vehicle, but the Newmans and several other people saw that thing at least come to a short stop for a short, brief, brief time, and that was before Z323. So, take that for what it's worth. Uh because what's he doing stopping this vehicle in the middle of all this nonsense going on? Because uh, in my mind's eye, we have another shot from the South Knoll at 225 going into the windshield between Kellerman and Greer, between uh, Nellie and John Connolly, and hitting Kennedy in the throat. This is my theory. Uh, a lot of evidence that might back this up. People saw uh, 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 Ms. Glange, she's a nurse at uh, Parkland Hospital. She saw 
threw him through bullet hole. Then, you know, there's different things. Doug went and did a, a big examination of this windshield and a lot of nonsense that went on that weekend with the with the limo going out to Michigan. So it's just important, what I'm saying is, to understand a lot of this stuff, you really got to look into all these little details. Now, not saying that everybody's right, but you got to have that information and look at it objectively. You can't come up with this crazy, crazy nonsense. Just, oh my God, this is what I'm going to believe. You have to look at all the pieces of the pie. So anyways, Kennedy gets hit, 3-2-3. Three, three. All of a sudden, Greer takes off. Kellerman describes a bunch of the flurry. And he says, get out of here. Now, here's what's important. The distance from that point and under the underpass and the turn to the Stemmons is a very short period of time. Now, William Greer is driving this vehicle. So, obviously, he's got to get him to a hospital. And there's no evidence that I know of that is available. Maybe I'm wrong, or maybe I have not seen it. But that's a short period of time to make a decision to what hospital you're going to go to. Okay? Right. Now, we do know that Parkville was informed at some point, probably once the limo was on the Stemmons and it was heading to Parkland. So, who's telling Greer to get to Parkland specifically? What do you think, Rob? Uh, I don't know. Probably uh, Curry. Well, Curry's in the car in front of him, though. So it was somebody in the car. Well, it, it, it had to come from Kellerman. You know, Kellerman, does Kellerman tell him specifically at that point, you know, make a left-hand turn or make a right-hand turn here and get on the stem and go like hell and get the park as quick as possible? Have been or sick. does Greer know that he's, his destination is there? I think they were on the radio with somebody, I, I would have to think. Yeah, but remember, Rob, there's a very short period of time between the time the assassination actually occurred and they go on the underpass. There's only a short amount of road before you have to make that turn to the stomachs. Right, right. Okay, so, I mean, maybe Greer had been told ahead of time, hey, you know, if there's something that happens... This is where the hospital, and you go to that one. Yeah, that's probably what know. it was. I mean, they, they would probably have to know, you know, where where the hospitals were, and you know, in relation to the route. I would assume, in case something did happen, it'd be part of the plan. Yeah, sure, sure. But I'm just bringing this up because there's a possibility that he may have been the one to know only specifically. I don't know. So, anyways, he's driving down the Stemmons. He gets the he gets the limo to park the hospital to the back. Doc, they unload Connolly, and they put him in rom, uh, trauma room two. Then they unload Kennedy, and uh, they bring him into trauma one. Now, waiting in trauma room one because they had already been notified. This nurse Hanklet, she's in there already. She's in all alone. And uh, as they brought Kennedy in, uh, I think it was. Clark and a couple other nurses of William Greer are now entering Trump 1. Now, Nurse Hencliffe makes the immediate, immediate thing she sees Kennedy is his, his body is being laid down that he has this big wound in the back of his head and he has a small hole in his throat. 
and she said she her her words were that no bigger than the end of her pinky. So we don't have a distorted wound at that point. It's a very clear wound, and she said that this looked like an entry wound to her. And of course, work was begun on Kennedy, and Malcolm Perry comes in, and he decides to make that tracheotomy through that wound. Later on in a conference after all this has happened, he says three times this is an entry wound. Okay, they're dealing with bullet wounds all the time. This has been his decision. You know, this is what he saw. Right. So, uh, you know, it's pretty pretty obvious when you take the initial information that we have an entrance wound in the throat of Kennedy. Now, where did this bullet go? Because you also have uh, him laying down on his back. He's pronounced dead. And then the nurses go to work on him. And... Uh, they're cleaning up his whole body because he's blood all over the place. And none of the doctors or the nurses saw a wound in the back, in Kennedy's back, as described in the autopsy in Bethesda later on. Now, this is quite interesting to me because the nurses took all of Kennedy's clothes off and they gave them to William Greer whose own testimony states that he remained with the body. He was with that at all times. And this is very important, I think, to understand because he went through this whole thing. He was, you know, he was on Air Force One. He was at Bethesda and everything afterwards. So you have to understand that Greer is a key player in this whole thing. So they clean up Kennedy. They put a towel around his head, and they ask uh, Aubrey Wright and Dennis McGuire, who were heel uh, ambulance employees that were at the were at Parkland, because they had brought in an epileptic seizure, which was right in the area of Dealey Platt shortly before. Yeah. So they were there. They were they were already there. The thing that they had to start now start having to wonder is, well, how are we going to get Candy out and this and that. This is where the audience has to have little participation in here to understand the importance of reading the price exhibits. This is found in the Warren Commission testimony. Uh, the, the importance of this to understand is what is going on with all these people that work at Parkland, what they were doing, and understand the movement of their in relationship to the time so all these events are happening before Kennedy's body is brought supposedly out in a bronze casket to the dock and loaded into an O'Neill ambulance and then brought to Love Field for loading on Air Force One. As all the pictures show, they show the Secret Service bringing up the ramp and into Air Force One. What's interesting in the price exhibits is that there is quite a bit of information that tells you that the Secret Service agents, along with Mr. Price, uh, they, they had asked him, Mrs. Well, is there an alternative route out of, out of Parkland other than the way he came in through the dock? And they were also asking about where can they get a casket? 
and it was mentioned that they could probably pick it up at one or two places. A military installation, and that's key, military installation, or at a local funeral. So what I'm trying to do here is tie in the fact that, and a lot of people who examine this case understand that when Kennedy's body was brought to Bethesda, it was brought in military-style casket, shipping casket. This is documented that his body came out of that when he went into the autopsy room. That's well, right. And Russ, real quick, everybody yeah. wants to go back and listen to my interview with Dennis David, who was the chief of the day at Bethesda, received Kennedy's body in that metal shipping casket that day. So, yeah, good. If you want to hear the details about all that, go back and, and have a listen to that. All right, go ahead, Russ. Yeah, that, that's a very, very important thing. So here we have the possibility of Kennedy going out two different ways. And the the one way that everybody thinks he went out was in a bronze casket and loaded off the dock into O'Neill ambulance and brought to, brought to Air Force One on Long Field. There is a second, if you read the price exhibits, and uh, I believe that we'll have a link on this little interview of Rob, you can it. Yeah, we'll put up all relevant links to everything we're talking about here today over at the website, most definitely. Yeah, okay. Because if you read, and, and it's important to read all of it, you can't just read a portion of it. You have to understand these people that are involved in this whole thing. The Secret Service asked Mr. Price to show them another route out of the hospital. And it's through a tunnel, which is in the opposite direction from where the dock is. Now, the thing about this is, is that everybody thinks through what's going on that Kennedy's coming out of that, that hospital within a bronze casket. Um, all the evidence that we know of right now shows that to be. But as often is the case in this wonderful little novel or story or whatever you want to call it, things aren't quite as they usually are. And we know that obfuscation pays a, a big hand in this whole thing because we can't figure the case out. We can't completely, we're getting closer, but we can't figure it out. So that information exhibit will show you that, hey, possibly we have a military casket possibly at Parkland Hospital at that time. We also have no visible back wound observed by anybody in trauma room one. And we have Aubrey Wright and Dennis McGuire on Gale Ambulance people already there um, loading Kennedy's body into a bronze casket that was brought to Parkland by the owner of the O'Neill funeral parlor, and O'Neill. He was called by, uh, he was hooked up by one of the nurses, uh, and Clint Hill made that phone call. And they said, bring the nicest one he got, which is the, the creation of the bronze casket. Well, Mr. O'Neill, at that point in time, everybody in his funeral parlor was on watch. And he had to get that bronze casket into one of the O'Neill ambulances, which ended up being the white 
ambulance that you see Kennedy being taken away from Parkland Hospital, that's the bronze casket came in with him after he had delivered it. Now, at that time, uh, Mr. O'Neill, the bronze casket was in display at his funeral parlor, and he had two green oxygen tanks in that casket. Uh, they were put there just for convenience sake to, to keep him out of the way. It was just how it was. And because he was there all alone, he just left in there. Now, there is documentation of this. And he also has said that he put in there a body bag. So now you have the bronze casket loaded by Vernon O'Neill, the owner of the ambulance, of the, the funeral parlor, the whole purpose, by himself, loading it, the bronze casket into the O'Neill ambulance, drives it to Park Hospital, where the, the bronze casket is brought in. And uh, the two other employees were already there are asked to help put Kennedy's body in the brown casket, and they do that, and it is documented. Well, they, they, they close it up, they seal it. They seal the bronze casket. Then at that point, everybody was asked to leave trauma room one. Now, here we get into a little bit about how obfuscation continues. Mayor Arrow Cavill was outside that door at that time and he ended up coming into trauma room one with Jackie Kennedy for last kind of look where she uh, played the ring and all this other stuff and that's that all happened before the casket was seen then everybody was asked to leave. And the reason why they were is because they were trying to create the security aspect and making sure that how they were going to actually get his body out of there, which ended up being, according to what we know, and uh, I think Doug Horn has made an example of this particular aspect. figures it's somewhere to be 20, 25 minutes, which is not unreasonable. Uh, I think there's enough time in the timeline here if you really look at it for it to be very, very true. But... We do know from looking at the Warren Commission testimonies that of uh, Mayor Cavill and his wife, uh, uh, mainly through her testimony that uh, Errol Cavill and his wife were separated for a period of time, but they also end up coming back together to travel in the motorcade that left Parkland Hospital for Love Field. So, Cavill going out because he kind of gets lost in the shuffle. This is where I'm making a little bit of speculation because Will, William Greer is in that Parkland trauma room one and never left the remains. That's his testimony. He stayed with the remains. It would take something special to go on to go into my next theory as to how that body got out of that casket and Dennis David knew that, hey, he unloaded the body in a military casket. All right, Russ, we well, also know through photographic evidence. I was just going to say, Russ, this would be a good. Yeah, Rob, what do you got? This would be a good uh, stopping point here, and then we can get into 
how that body got back to Dallas, what went on in transit, as opposed to uh, maybe what David Lifton laid out for us. Because uh, really when it comes to the medical evidence, you got David Lifton and you got Doug Horn being the two major major views. And uh, you, you, got, you have an alternate theory uh, than both of them, but also combining both of their research because you know neither one of them is entirely wrong and neither one of them is entirely right and what you've put together is a whole different amalgamation and people you're going to want to hear this and so make sure you come back check out part two with Russ LaChapelle we're going to get into uh, getting that body out of Parkland get it back to Bethesda and what ensued in that autopsy room. You don't want to miss it. So Russ, thank you very much for for, uh, coming on this week and we will get back to you next week and continue the saga of Kennedy's body. Thanks, buddy. Okay, thank you. Make sure you head over to 22novembernetwork.wordpress.com for all relevant information uh, involving this podcast. This some bitches in the can, up to the satellite, beam down directly to your ears. This is your boy Rob Clark, out. save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. It's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the...
Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.